As I was preparing for um, Sunday, uh, we've been doing studies from First Timothy, but the burden that laid in my heart was just what was happening in the U.S., and I thought it would be a good time for us to pause and to, uh, and to ask ourselves, how do we view this? What is the Bible saying? And so uh, as I was reading, my, my, um, my attention was drawn to the passage that was read in First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And in the context of what is happening, it seems like a very radical text, right? Because how do, you, how do you so quickly put aside your emotions? How do you uh, make petitions? How do you pray? How do you intercede? And how do you thank those in authority? Those are some of the uh, questions that I had as I was wrestling, and I recognize that some of us are, recogn- uh, are wrestling too, and I hope to draw from God's word uh, how do we respond to this. You see, because um, what I want to call this is the biblical point of view. Like, what does the Bible have to say? Each of us will have our own uh, views, but it's always good to draw back to what the Bible is saying. And so what I'd like to do is to look at the context, uh, try and understand what it means when we say a biblical worldview, and then what does that mean to me and to my children? Today was actually part of the, um, uh, the plan was to look at uh, parenting, like as parents, what do we pass on? So well, we will look at that too. Uh, New York Times had this to say about the elections. It said, one of the most divisive and least predictable campaign seasons. Uh, I just got back from India, and people were asking in India, what's happening in the U.S.? Uh, They were actually ashamed for Christians in the U.S. It says, what's happening in this Christian nation? Now to tell them that it's it's not a Christian nation. A, A Christian, you know, a nation with Christians is not the same as a Christian nation. And and yet, even a nation with Christians seems to be, um, I I don't know what their worldview is, and so how do they respond? And and so as you keep that in mind, um, you look at it, what what were the choices available? Uh, Oftentimes when you start talking about it, um, it it was the... um, now, Trump had this religious advisory board, and um, I, I know John um, James McDonald was part of that team, and, and the head of that uh, religious board was Ralph Reed, and he was saying this. He says, people of faith are voting on issues. They're talking about the unborn life, to defend the religious freedom, to grow the economy, appoint conservative judges. So who they're really voting for are issues. They're not voting for people necessarily, is what he was saying. And it seems like, yeah, that's, that sounds good. Uh, but uh, James Smith, from uh, he was a professor. He's a professor at the Calvinistic uh, Calvin College, and he's, he had a great response to it. He says, so the price of preserving religious freedom is to cast your lot with someone who mocks and makes a mockery of your belief and practice. 
maybe, just maybe, securing your religious freedom isn't worth compromising your religion. He said it beautifully. What he's saying is just so that you can have these choices, does that mean we can join somebody who is making mockery of the very religion we're trying to protect? He is saying he's not, uh, he does not think compromising faith for the sake of freedom is worth it. And so as you hear these various voices, you start to very quickly start to say it's very confusing. It's not, you know, it's not an easy decision. I look at it and I say it's a classic case of life played out. Oftentimes life puts us in, uh, gives us choices between the devil and the deep sea. Two choices, and both those choices are not something that we need and want or want to make, and yet those are the only choices that we have many times. And so this presidential election, I mean, we're not impacted by it, but I'm talking because we, we, we did have conversations. We do have conversations in the family, in our community. And so this U.S. election seems to only highlight such choices that this life gives us. So because of that, it's good to ask ourselves this question, how do we, how do we look at these uh, such situations in life? How do I make choices? Uh, Post-election, what has happened? Uh, the country is still divided, isn't it? Uh, Washington Post says America woke up Wednesday as two nations. Josh was referring to the anti-Trump protest that's happening in various places and, and the signatures that have been collected. You know, the nation is divided. But more than that, the church is also divided. I want you to understand this. You see, in the very church, in, in the evangelical church, not just church, you know, as they call church, but in the evangelical church, there's a big divide. Like, how do you make these choices? Like, how have, you know, they, they have taken two sides. Um, many of our Hispanic and our African-American brothers, they are scarred and they're scared. So, you, you know, the, the question really begs an answer. And I want to really think about uh, how elections were approached. Um, Christians approached it at least in three ways. Uh, there could be a fourth way if, if, they, if you consider the biblical worldview that we want to talk about, but I just want to first focus on the first three ways, the three different ways that uh, Christians focus. The first one is I don't care. You know, the, uh, they have a term, the political non-involvement. I don't care. I, you know, it doesn't matter whatever's going to happen. It doesn't matter. And then there was the second group who said it doesn't matter. You know, que sera, sera. You know, things are going to work out on their own. Like, everything's going to be okay. John Lennon said it. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. It's just going to work out. We, we have this go-to words, do we not? It's the Romans 8.28. Uh, you know, all things will work out for good. But you know something that's just such a misquote? That is not what the verse is saying. It's not saying everything will work out in the end. That's not what that verse is saying, but we use that to say, listen, it doesn't matter. That verse is really about something else, and you know, we can talk about it later, but go and, and look at it. It's not saying everything's going to work out in, 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 
you know, for everybody. And then you have the third group who said, it's my religion. Politics is my religion. You know, the way they approach it. I don't think I'll be too far away if I were to say the top three religions of, in the U.S. is uh, politics, it's sports, and it's guns. Right? Because the way they approach it, I'm not sure if you've read uh, the uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters. Screw tape letters is a letter that the uh, demon screw tape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood. And in that, this is what he writes, and he says, uh, politics, try to convince your human target that politics is key part of his faith, his or her faith. And then once they are under that influence, they become partisan, they become divided. They, you know, they'll have opposite views. And then faith will just become a pretext. What, what they're saying is if you can confuse them, if you can catch them with this, saying that politics is the main issue, everything that happens in America is because of politics that faith can, can happen, the focus on faith will divide them and faith will lose its impact. And you start to think about it and you, you know, if you've got some friends in the U.S., the, the religious fervor that they show towards this politics, it's just uh, interesting. Um, Pascal had this to say, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it with religious conviction. If there's a religious conviction, they will do anything, any evil, without a problem. So that's the context. Now, I just wanted to go through and paint that for us because I want us to understand that, you know, it is divisive. It is scarring. The testimony of the church is impacted. And so it's good to just pause and to, and to ponder and ask ourselves, so what? What's, what do I do? How does, how does life look from this point? And also use this as a template for... Um, our decision-making. The question that I have is, as ambassadors of the divine kingdom, what should our appropriate response be? How do we respond? Uh, how do I look at the instruction manual that God has given? How does this become real in situations like this? And so um, I want to read that text from the New Living Translation, it says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and to give thanks. Now, I want you to understand this, you know, this is countercultural in its instructions. And a countercultural instruction requires a countercultural response. What it's saying is this Bible is talking about things that the world won't ask you to do, and our response has to be a response which is not what the world is expecting us. Countercultural. I ask myself again, and you see, the, the world is asking questions. They, are, they want answers. They're looking for hope. They're looking for comfort. What do we have to say? What's our response? How do we respond? Is it, is it that the world has stopped asking church about these questions? 
they don't want to ask the church, is it because we have squandered our privileges, uh, our, our responsibility, our stewardship? Uh, we have lost the savor. We are no more the salt of the earth. They don't think that they can come and ask a Christian, a believing, Christ-following Christian, if you know, we have to define, it, uh, define a Christian so much, then Christian is a Christ follower. But they don't want to ask because we have squandered our testimony. And I ask myself also, how, how do our children see us respond? Not just in this. We, we didn't go to the elections. But if this were a template, if this is something that we can hold up and say, this is how I responded, and every other thing, how do our children see us respond? Do they see a difference in our belief and our behavior? Do they, do they, are they able to see that our comfort is in the promises of God's word, not in circumstances? Are they able to see that our Sunday morning meditations is no different from a weekday decision making. You see, on a Sunday morning, we can say things and do things, but on a weekday, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, we are so different. Do they see the difference? Are they able to see that we function, we, we look at it from the same worldview, which is biblical? But before I answer those questions, I, I want to give you four quick verses that will settle us to know that what has happened in the U.S. or what will ever happen to us as Christians is not something that we have to be uh, you know, terrified about as if God is not in control. One, I want you to know God is sovereign because Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says he sets up kings and disposes them. God didn't go, oops, on that Wednesday morning. I want you to understand that. He is in control. Uh, are we to trust Trump? Is he the one who will be a savior? Psalm 118 verse 9 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And uh, I don't know if wall, deportation, bigotry, racism, misogyny, nuclear codes are what's worrying you, but I want you to know that any of this backlash can only happen as much as the divine uh, restrainer will allow. God is still in control. Proverbs 2.11 says, The king's heart, that the president's heart, is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. And God will fulfill his plan. He's the God who we worship, and he is on the throne. And so we, are, we worry not, but yet we are called to pray for the success of those in authority of whom God has placed. So the real questions are this, like how do I interact with the world? How do I integrate my faith, my work, my life? How do I respond to the situations that I face in life? That's the bigger question. That is what you know, I want us to, you know, to prompt our thinking towards. Uh, we've been told that we are Christians to be in the world but not of the world, right? We, we, we said we are to be in the world but not of the world, but we ask ourselves this question, what, what does that mean? How does that look? Are we to be 
separated and, you know, separated and isolated? Are they the same? Are they too different? Are we to have our, you know, self-made monasteries? How does that look? That's the question. So Richard uh, Newber, he actually, about 50 years ago, so this is not a new question. I want you to understand. This question has been asked by, by theologians and Christians. And so about 50 years ago, he put out five ways that Christians respond. One, he said the Christians are usually conflicting in opposition. You know, culture, no, I don't want to do anything with that, nothing to do. I, I, I'm a Bible guy, so totally opposed. Or sometimes they say, let's compromise. You know, we have to make our adjustments. You know, we have to change according to culture. If I'm in North America, I have to change according to North America. Or if I'm somewhere else, I have to change according to that. And then, and then he gives three other different things about integrating. And the last one is about this engagement where Richard says, um, you see, Christ is the one who transforms cultures. Culture is not uh, to be feared. It's not something that is out of the purview of Christ. He transforms culture. You and I are here because our culture was transformed by Christ himself. You see, one of the things that I always think about is um, slavery. It's a good example because uh, for the longest time, People were saying, I mean, even now, sometimes they start talking about how is it that Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, never spoke up against slavery, about abolishing of slavery. Paul, he never speaks anything about abolishing of slavery. And that seems like a very valid question. Till such time you really get into it, because Jesus did abolish slavery, not through a political or through a social cause, but transformational. It is this spiritual kingdom that he sets up, and he transforms it from the inside out. And that's what, um, that's what we need to latch on to, the, the counter-cultural mindset, not doing things that this world is, is uh, the way the world does this, but to see how this transformation happens uh, from, the, uh, from the Bible. And that's what, that is what is biblical worldview. And so very quickly, what I want to do is I want to show you um, an easy way to remember, if you would, what is a biblical worldview, all right? Now, now, the easiest way to remember is the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Three things I want you to notice in that. Three things that are happening. One is, hallowed be thy name. God, your name ought to be glorified. That's your first one. Your kingdom come. God, you ought to reign in, in, on, this, on this earth in everything. And third, your will be done. It is about your will, your satisfaction, and that is what we seek. Your glory, your reign, your will. If we are, we are caught up in that, in that conviction that it is about him, that what we do, the way we decide, is about his glory, about his reign, about his will, we can see that that meshes in with what we would call the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview. That's easy to remember, right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Glory reign will. In everything that we do, we ask ourselves this question. Is God glorified? 
Does he reign supreme in my life, in my heart, in my decision, in my choices? Is his will being done in my life? So how does that look when we have to pass it on? Not just that we practice it, that this would be our, you know, when our, when our kids look at us, that they would see that, yes, that is what my parent is about. And how do we teach this? How do we pass this on? Because it, it's no good that we believe this without adding on that stewardship responsibility of showing this is the reason why we believe. Because, you know, uh, the statistics that Jay Wallace of the Cold Case Christianity, he says this, because biblical worldview has not been modeled to students, they are leaving Christian faith. Let me read to you another, another report by LifeWay, which, came, uh, which reached a similar conclusion. There is n- no easy way to say it, but it must be said. Parents and churches are not passing on a robust Christian faith and an, accom- and an ac- accompanying commitment to the church. Let me read that again, sorry. Parents and churches are not passing on a robust Christian faith and an accompanying commitment to, to the church. We can take some solace in the fact that they may eventually return. But Christian parents and churches need to ask the hard question, what is it about a faith commitment that does not find root in the life of our children? The children are saying, there's something about my parents that I'm not able to see the validity of the faith they're speaking about, the truth, the, the honesty of the faith, and so they walk in a way. That's what research is saying. Cunningham, in his book, Trophy Child, he writes, Welcome to the real world. Satan wants your children to adopt false beliefs about the world. Satan wants our children to serve themselves, deny God and his word, and ultimately die separated from God. This is his plan. And so, uh, you know, I ask this question as I, you know, as, as a parent, um, and for all of us who have toddlers now as they grow, the responsibility that we have of living that life that establishes at home, at our church, in the community, that we have lived for his glory, for his reign, for his will, for the biblical mandate, and that how our children see us do and, and decide based on those bases so that they, when they have to start making their own decisions, will start to live uh, what we have uh, lived and how we have lived. And um, <clears throat> so uh, Larry F- Fowler, who in his book, Raising a Modern Day Joseph, he asks two questions. And I thought, I was reading the book, and I thought that was just something that we can, we, you know, it speaks to each of us as a parent. He says he will ask a parent this one question. What do you want to be able to say about your children when they are 30? When your child, when your son, your daughter turns 30, what is it that you want to say about them? And usually the parent would say, you know, I hope he's got a good career or she's got a good career. I hope they're married, they're settled, they're good. And then he asked the second question. 
And the second question is, what would cause you to grieve if you have to say it about how your children are doing when they're 30? What will cause you grief? If you have to say about your child, what will cause you grief about, when they, you know, about where they are in life when they are 30? And the usual responses are, oh, they're lost, or they're addicted, or they have morally failed. And Fowler says, you know, how we have addressed life, our mindset, our worldview, how we have got it upside down. We want our children to be comfortable, peaceful, married, all of that is good. But if that's the priority that we have shown and, and, and uh, modeled, then the second question, the answer to that question becomes even more pertinent because they tend to then not see the honesty of our faith claim. So the question I ask is, you know, have we passed on a Christian faith or a Christianized view of our faith? We teach subtly that prosperity is the evidence of God's blessing. We teach our children to pursue happiness and fulfillment over pursuit of holiness. We want them to be happy rather than discipline them to be holy. We would rather they not cry or fuss than take the long road to build their character. We are unable to show tough love to prepare them for life because we ourselves do not have a template. We ourselves don't know, and so we're not able to pass on. Well, that's a sad place to be. And so what they see as our lives is a Christianized life. Everything looking honky-dory. We turn up on a Sunday morning. Our Sunday morning meditations are different from our weekday decisions. And so my prayer, my burden, and my pastoral responsibility is this for all of us and for our little children and for the toddlers that we, God has given us and for the more to come is, um, and I borrowed this from this book, the follower, uh, the one he wrote, Raising Modern Day Joseph. And he talks about the character and the conduct of Joseph the character and conduct of Joseph. Now, I think it's good for us to, you know, use that, use that as a test for ourselves and also to pray that our children, when they find themselves where Joseph found himself and the response that Joseph had would be the response that they would have. You see, why Joseph? Because Joseph, he left home or he was forced to leave home when he was 17, most of our children would leave home around that time as they go to, go to universities, or they may, they may stay with us, that's no problem, but they've already checked out from their homes, and they're starting to make their own decisions. And so Joseph is a good um, example. And so he, see his character when he was tempted. He was far away, he was alone, he was vulnerable. He had every reason to fall into Potiphar's, uh, Potiphar's wife's hand. 
And, and in Genesis 39, 9, this is what we read. He says, no, no one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing. Joseph understood the trust that was placed on him. The one thing that we need to know, the trust that is placed on us and on our children. And then he goes on to say, because you are his wife, he understood boundaries. He knew that these are boundaries you don't test, you don't, you don't cross, you don't check to see how do I extend those boundaries. And then this is a, he says it's a wicked thing. He understood what is right and wrong. And a wicked thing is not because someone else is there to watch, but it's wickedness before God. Because he goes on to say it would be a great sin against God. And he knew every sin is a sin against God. You see, Joseph had this biblical worldview established in his heart. That at the time when he was most vulnerable, he was lonely, he was away. When there was no accountability uh, in the community, yet he stood strong for the Lord. John Wooden, John Wooden was the... um, head coach of the UCLA basketball, he, was, he says this, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching, and Joseph passes with flying colors. Now I think about it for myself, for us, for every child here. You see, oftentimes when we study for our exams, we cram just the night before the exam. It's the last moment preparation. But life does not give us that. Life does not give us that luxury of cramming in just before the test. The tests come in at any time. And unless we take time to prepare them for life, unless we give them the template, unless we as parents live that life and and show them that worldview that this Bible is worth it, that I can follow that, they will not be prepared when temptations and tests come in their lives. And so I pray that they will understand to live for his glory, for his reign, and for his will. But not just his character, but I also, you know, when he was weak, but also think about the conduct when he was in power. So not just in weakness that Joseph demonstrated in his low point, but even in his high point when he had power. He was a second... Uh, in authority in Egypt. And the context of this time is when Joseph's father had died, embalming was not even done, and the brothers are concerned. They're fearful that Joseph is going to take revenge. And this is what he says in Genesis 50, chapter 50 and verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save lives of many people. His confidence in the sovereignty of God. He who went through so much, who could have blamed, he could have, he, he could have said that I, it is right for me to take vengeance on these brothers who, who it says there that he cried for help, but they did not hear him. He, they sat down to eat the food that he himself brought for them. And so that's Joseph. Tested and tried and faithful in the lowest point and on the highest point. And I plead that that would be our story, our character, our conduct.
that God would be honored in our midst. God would reign supreme in our lives. That his will, his will alone would happen. And that as the world will look at us, they can see that we are ambassadors of a different kingdom. We are children of the king. And that they can see us trust our sovereign God to fulfill his purposes. We are not dependent on the circumstances, the political or whatever. We will do our responsibility. And that is what the verse is saying. Our responsibility we will commit. But our strength, our stand is not on the circumstance or situation. Our trust is in God himself. And so, therefore, welcome. Uh, if, if that is what you have want to do, to the three things, his glory, his reign, his will. And I want to stop just by reading Max Lucado on the sovereignty. We are, we are really, really ready for this presidential elections to be over. Obviously, this was written before. And it says, we are ready for this presidential election to be over. When we wake up on November 9th post-election, when the confetti is swept away and the election is finally over, what will we see? I have a prediction, Max Lucero says. I have a prediction. I know exactly what November 9th will bring. He says, another day of God's perfect sovereignty. He will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, a president, or a ruler. He is the king. He is the God we believe, we trust. And so may his name be glorified in our midst. Father, we thank you for all that you are. We know our hearts, Lord, sometimes we grasp to find and to have answers. And we, we, we use, Lord, our own templates. And we pray, Father, that, that our lives would be lived in a way that you are honored. It's about your glory. It's about your reign over us, in our family, in our church. And, Lord, as, you, as the prayer would be answered, one day we will see all, every knee will bow and acknowledge uh, the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray even today in every aspect that your will will be done and established in this community, Lord. We pray that you will start with us. And to this we ask, and God's people said, Amen. <laughs>